Sometimes going to the grocery store can be chaotic. There doesn't seem to be enough time to check the list, make sure everything is there, search for the best prices, and take the time to make sure you get the best quality meat. So let ButcherBox help you out. Giving you peace of mind, ButcherBox delivers high-quality meat and seafood that you can trust straight to your door. No grocery carts required. Humanely raised, no antibiotics or hormones, 100% grass-fed, free-range, and crate-free, what more can you ask for? What about free shipping, customized box plans, exclusive member deals, recipe inspirations, tips, and tricks? You really can't go wrong with ButcherBox. Sign up at butcherbox.com slash morning cup and get our special deal. ButcherBox is offering our listeners a free for a year offer plus an additional $20 off. Choose salmon, chicken breasts, or steak tips free in every order for a year. Sign up today at butcherbox.com slash morning cup and use code morning cup to choose your free for a year offer plus get $20 off your first order. Hey guys, I have a podcast that I think you'll really enjoy. Proof, the investigative true crime podcast co-hosted by Susan Simpson of Undisclosed and Jacinda Davis of Evil Lives Here is releasing its highly anticipated second season where they investigate the murder of 18-year-old Renee Ramos. The first season, which if you haven't listened to yet, you totally should, saw the release of two Georgia men serving life sentences for murdering their friend, Brian Bowling. And thanks to evidence unearthed by proof, on December 8th, 2022, both Daryl Lee Clark and Kane Joshua Story were finally freed after 25 years behind bars. With that same investigative drive, Susan and Jacinda are on the case again, and this time, they are on the streets of Manteca, California, to find out who really killed Renee Ramos. In proof, murder at the warehouse, you hear how, on June 5th, 2000, Renee's body was found buried beneath a pile of debris inside a new Home Depot building. And how, despite tips hinting at alternate suspects, her boyfriend, 18-year-old Jake Silva, and 33-year-old Ty Lopez were arrested and convicted of her murder. Fans of true crime and investigative series won't want to miss this riveting new season. Follow the case as Susan and Jacinda uncover long-overlooked evidence about what really happened to Renee, by listening to Proof, Murder at the Warehouse, wherever you get your podcasts. There were two more murders 15 miles away. When police the arrived, they found the telephones and electricity lines. We have a weird homicide. A scene described by one investigator as reminiscent of a weird... Some topics are incredibly difficult to cover, especially given recent circumstances. But they are a part of our history and, no matter how dark deserve to be told. On February 26, 1965, a man died after being shot during a peaceful riot. And with his death came a significant moment for both U.S. and Black American history. So if you like your coffee hot but your bones chilled, sit back and start your day with a morning cup of murder. Jimmy Lee Jackson was born on December 16, 1938, in Marion, Alabama, to a local farming family dedicated to the Baptist Church. Jimmy lived a pretty normal life, full of tragedy and successes. When he was 18, his father died, so he took over the farm. He had a daughter, moved to Indiana to work as a laborer, earning a meager $6 a day, and by 1964, became the youngest deacon at his Marion church. 
But something Jimmy was never able to do, and something that none of the black men and women living in Alabama were able to do, was register to vote. And it wasn't for lack of trying. In 1962, civil rights organizer Albert Turner convinced residents of Marion to try and register. And Cager Lee, his grandfather, was one of the first in line alongside his mother Viola and Jimmy. Unfortunately, not only were the voters turned away, but the elderly Cager was treated rudely and with a heavy hand. That exchange would change Jimmy's perspective forever and instill in him the fight for equality that helped to change this nation. He knew his place was in the civil rights movement. He wrote letters protesting the treatment of black voter applicants, attended civil rights meetings, boycotted white businesses, and joined any and all of the nearby marches. Jimmy tried to register without success for four years, as did his mother Viola and his grandfather Cager Lee. The marches had been happening near Selma since 1963. But in January of 1965, a very important addition was made that took the marches to a national level. Martin Luther King Jr., who had come to speak in Selma with the Southern Christian Leadership Conference and was making waves all over the U.S., joined their fight and all eyes were turned to this campaign for voters' rights. MLK started to lead nightly mass meetings and marches to the courthouse, many of which were attended by Jimmy Lee Jackson and his family. During one of those marches in February, more than 3,000 demonstrators were arrested. And at another demonstration, Sheriff Jim Clark's posse used cattle prods to drive protesters out of town, leaving them wounded and stranded away from home. The sheriff himself clubbed civil rights leader C.T. Vivian before placing him in a jail cell. And it wasn't just Selma that was experiencing this resistance. Weeks before this arrest, 700 black children who were marching around the courthouse were arrested and the civil rights leaders accompanying them were jailed for contributing to the delinquency of minors. Things were getting violent, but protesters weren't backing down and started planning for a dangerous step that they hoped would get the attention that they needed. Night marches. On February 18, 1965, about 200 to 500 people gathered together under the guidance of C.T. Vivian and left the Zion United Methodist Church in Marion, where they attempted to make a peaceful protest all the way to the Perry County Jail, where a civil rights worker named James Orange was being held. They sang hymns and walked side by side for the half a block route, prepared to make their presence known and then walk back to the church. And with them on this march was Jimmy Lee Jackson, his 16-year-old sister Emma Jean, his mother Viola, and his grandfather Cager Lee. Unfortunately, before they even walked a block, they were faced with a line of state troopers and the police chief who demanded they disperse and go back home. They stopped marching, but were prepared to stand their ground when something happened that would quickly change this from a peaceful demonstration to an all-out bloodbath. Without warning, the streetlights were cut off, and as a minister knelt to pray in the dark, a trooper took the opportunity to strike him in the head. At that, a frenzy broke out with protesters fleeing and troopers swinging their clubs. Jimmy and his mother hurried off to a nearby cafe, where they huddled together to try and keep themselves safe. That's when they saw Cager come inside, beaten and bloody. Jimmy was horrified and tried to lead his elderly grandfather out of the door to get him to a hospital when they were shoved back inside by a crowd of troopers and marchers. The officers made their way into the cafe where they started knocking out lights and knocking down the people inside. Jimmy looked over to see an officer strike his mother. 
and without thinking of the consequences, lunged to defend her. He was beaten by the officer's club and slammed into a cigarette machine. The next thing anyone heard was the deafening sound of a gunshot blast. And as Jimmy looked down, he saw that he had been shot in the stomach. He collapsed and two hours later was finally able to be taken to a local hospital. There, while he fought for his life, he told FBI officials that he was, quote, clubbed down by state troopers after he was shot and had escaped from the cafe, but it would take 40 years for the gunman to be publicly named. He was also served with an arrest warrant from the Alabama State Police while still in his hospital bed. Jimmy Lee Jackson would never have to serve that prison sentence. That's because eight days after his initial attack, Jimmy died of his wounds in the hospital. With his tragic murder, Jimmy became a martyr for the cause that he died fighting for. He was honored at a memorial service, buried on an old slave burial ground next to his father with a headstone paid for by the Perry County Civic League, and at one of his memorial services, Martin Luther King Jr. himself spoke about how his death meant they needed to work relentlessly to make their American dream a reality while still maintaining peace. Marches were organized, one of which being the incredibly historic Selma to Montgomery March in 1965, as a way for citizens to direct their anger over his death into something more positive, and continued to make their desire to vote along with everyone else known. Marches that led to Bloody Sunday, an incredibly violent reaction on the Edmund Pettus Bridge that attracted international attention and widespread support and another that gathered more than 25,000 marchers in what was considered the largest civil rights event in the city. All of this helped to aid in the passage of the Voting Rights Act of 1965, about five months later, and after the act was passed, Cager Lee, at the age of 84, got to register to vote for the first time in his life. Jimmy's brutal murder opened doors for millions of Black Americans all across the United States, who were able to participate as citizens in the political system for the first time since the turn of the 20th century. It's just tragic to think that a man had to die for such a change. A grand jury declined to indict the man who pressed a pistol right up to Jimmy Lee Jackson's stomach and pulled the trigger. And his name would not become public knowledge until an interview in 2005, where James Bernard Fowler claimed the police feared the protesters were planning a jailbreak and that Jimmy was going for his gun, claiming he took his life as an act of self-defense. On May 10th, 2007, 42 years after the murder, the district attorney in Perry County charged James Fowler for both first-degree murder and second-degree murder in an effort to prosecute civil rights-era crimes. He pleaded guilty to manslaughter on November 15, 2010, and was sentenced to six months in jail, of which he only served five. Thank you for joining me in my morning cup of murder. Please join me again tomorrow to hear what terrible thing happened on February 27th. Don't forget to rate and subscribe and let me know how you like it. If you want to help support the podcast, there's always Patreon or just sharing it with your true crime obsessed friends. And remember, stay safe.